I appreciate Tom Gow's kind introduction. I am going to have to change my remarks around a great deal. I had a speech prepared on black helicopters. <laughs> but, <laughs> but instead, I'll talk about another subject. I thought I might subtitle this talk, Defending the Decalogue. I have just come back from a solid week of being immersed in the courtroom along with several other fine Christian attorneys in Montgomery, Alabama, defending this case involving Chief Justice Moore and the Ten Commandments monument that he has placed in the rotunda of the Alabama Judicial Building. And when we think about the Ten Commandments, usually our thoughts at first turn to something very different. We don't really think so much about Exodus chapter 20 or Deuteronomy chapter 5, we're more likely to think back on Cecil B. DeMille and that <laughs> Ten Commandments movie that came out back in the 1950s and that is often shown on network television around Easter time just about every year to the point where I think I'm close to having it memorized and to the point that I'm coming to believe that maybe Moses really did look like Charlton Heston. <laughs> but if you ever see the uncut version of that movie, there's something very unusual in that movie. And in the uncut version, it begins with Cecil B. DeMille actually stepping out in front of the stage there on the movie, and he makes some remarks to the audience. Now, I don't really know anything about his religious beliefs or his political beliefs, but Cecil B. DeMille had a much better understanding of the significance of the Ten Commandments than do most lawyers and judges, and I have to say probably most pastors today. Here's what he said. Ladies and gentlemen, young and old, this may seem an unusual procedure, but we have an unusual subject the birth of freedom, the story of Moses. The theme of this picture is whether men ought to be ruled by God's laws or whether they are to be ruled by the whims of a dictator like Ramesses. Are men the property of the state or are they free souls under God? This same battle continues throughout the world today. Now, the battle that is taking place in Montgomery is similar to a number of court challenges that have taken place in many parts of the United States in the last couple of decades, and they seem to have accelerated greatly in the last several years. They've gone both ways. We've lost a case in Indiana. We won a case in Ohio, and it was reversed. We've lost a couple in Kentucky and recently won one. We have won one case in North Carolina and lost another there. We have won two cases in Utah. We lost one in Nebraska just a couple weeks ago. We won one in Texas. And so this battle is being fought all over the world, but there's something unique in Alabama. It's not very often that you go into a federal district court and sitting there in the defendant's seat as the defendant is the chief justice of a state supreme court. And this case is going to raise issues of federalism the relation of the federal government to the states, 
just as it raises issues of church and state and of God and government. What is really involved in this case is much more than just whether you can have a large rock in the rotunda of a judicial building. The case actually began many, many years ago as a lawyer by the name of Roy Moore decided to carve a plaque of the Ten Commandments. This is not the original, but he <laughs> carved this plaque. He placed it in his law office. When he became a DA, he placed it in his DA's office. And when he was appointed a circuit court judge, he placed it in his courtroom. At that time, never having handled a First Amendment case and never dreaming that it would lead to what it has led to today. We had the battle concerning this, first in a federal court where it was dismissed for lack of standing. That's technicality I won't go into here. It went into a state court proceeding where, again, ultimately it ended up being dismissed. But while the legal community and the judicial and academic community and the media strongly condemned this as some ayatollah trying to impose his views on other people, people of Alabama seem to see it otherwise. In Alabama, we elect Supreme Court justices and all judges on partisan labels. And the Republican Party prevailed upon Judge Moore to run for Chief Justice of the Alabama Supreme Court. He led the ticket, brought in four conservative justices with him, a court which, when I came to Alabama 12 years ago, was 9-0 Democrat, is now 8-1 Republican. And if you would like to express your appreciation for that, you might want to write a letter to the ACLU, because if they had not brought this case to begin with, Judge Moore would still be Judge Moore in Etowah County. But shortly after taking office, Chief Justice Moore unveiled a judicial milestone. We call it a judicial milestone because this monument weighs exactly 5,280 pounds. That was accidental as far as people are concerned, at least. Maybe there was a providential design there. The Ten Commandments are posted on the top. On each of the four sides are various quotations from Blackstone, from the Declaration of Independence, from George Mason, Thomas Jefferson, James Madison, George Washington, and other leading founders of our constitutional system of government dealing with the role of God in our national life. Three organizations have filed a lawsuit together, and these are, as you might guess, the American Civil Liberties Union, the Americans United for Separation of Church and State, and the Southern Poverty Law Center, which I assure you is anything but impoverished. And I was named, along with several others, a special deputy attorney general to assist in the defense of the case. My role has been more in the background. The real hero in this case is Chief Justice himself and those who are actually doing the argument in the court. My role has been possibly as an expert witness, although it looks like I won't be called in that capacity right now. We've been in court all week. We'll be continuing Monday and probably Tuesday. Then it's time for briefing, and we'll see where it goes from there. But the dean of the law school where I teach, and I teach at the Thomas Goode Jones School of Law in Faulkner University, 
Some law schools in this country put a token conservative on the faculty. We have sort of a token liberal on ours, but we tend to be a conservative school. And we say in our statement of purpose and philosophy that we are dedicated to the fundamental proposition that biblical truth is the foundation of just law, which summarizes what this case is really all about in a nutshell. Our dean, in an article that he wrote a couple of years ago, said that the real issue in this case is not whether a judge can have a plaque on the wall or a monument in his judicial building. The real issue is whether a judge can imply the existence of divinely ordained moral absolutes and judge accordingly. That's what the issue is. The ACLU strongly insists in its briefs that no judge has any authority to imply that there is any law higher than man's law, and yet that is exactly what our system of government is based upon. We read in the Declaration, a declaration that was drafted by a committee headed by a man who, of all the leading founders of this nation, was probably the least orthodox in his religious beliefs. I would not call him a deist, but Unitarian possibly. But Jefferson says in the Declaration that we are entitled to our independence, not by the UN Charter or the Geneva Agreements, but by the laws of nature and of nature's God. He goes on to say that we are all evolved, no, uh, what was that, created equal, <laughs> and that we are endowed by our government with certain negotiable privileges, no, by our creator with certain unalienable rights. And the only way you can call rights unalienable is to recognize that they come from a higher source than government. If government is the source of our rights, then they aren't really unalienable rights at all. They are only negotiable privileges because that which the government gives, the government can also take away. That's what the case is really all about. And I would ask you to pray, especially in this case, for the judge. We feel that the judge in this case, Myron Thompson is his name, he has a reputation as being a liberal judge, but we get the impression that he is trying to at least understand our position. We'd ask that you pray that God would continue to open his mind. We think that may be happening so far. Chief Justice Roy Moore has been on the witness stand about two solid days, and frankly, he has performed magnificently. In fact, the ACLU has even stopped asking him questions, and they've really even stopped raising objections to his testimony. And the judge has been the main one inquiring into testimony. In fact, much of the trial so far has been a conversation between Judge Myron Thompson on the bench and Chief Justice Roy Moore on the witness stand. The judge asking questions Chief Justice Moore giving answers. It's been a tremendous experience. But when we talk about church and state, I think we need to understand first that we are not trying to establish a state church. I can't say what I'm going to say right now with quite the same force that I could have said it a few years ago, but how many of you really think that I would want Bill Clinton heading the church? We don't want a state church, <laughs> nor really do we want the church running the government. 
And in fact, separation of church and state is a biblical concept. It goes back to Old Testament Israel, in contrast to the pagan nations around Israel where church and state were one, where the high priest and the king were one, and where the religion basically consisted of emperor worship, in Israel we see a sharp distinction. The kings, the civil authority, come from the tribe of Judah. The priests, the religious authority, come from the tribe of Levi. Jesus further recognized that distinction when he said, Render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and unto God the things that are God's. And Lord Acton, writing about that passage, said that Jesus there gave to the state a legitimacy it had never before understood, that its authority came from Almighty God himself. But he also placed upon the state a limit that the state had never before recognized, that there was a realm that was beyond Caesar's jurisdiction, the realm of God, the realm of the spirit, the realm of liberty of conscience, the realm of the mind. And Lord Acton went on to say that keeping government within its divinely important limits was the perpetual responsibility of the church. Separation of church and state is, I think, what we all want in an institutional sense. But separation of church and state does not mean and should not mean that government is divorced from God, that law is divorced from biblical values, or that believers should divorce themselves from the political process. In fact, a proper understanding would be a proper understanding would be exactly the opposite. Now, I'd like to look at the Ten Commandments just a little bit with you here and see how they apply to government, because we have had federal court decisions that say that they are undoubtedly and undeniably a religious document. They come from the Bible and they talk about God, so they must be religious. And we just ask that maybe God would open the mind of this judge and maybe even of our opponents to see that there is more to the story than that. Sometimes we get so caught up in the esoteric that we lose sight of what should be obvious. I recently heard about a camping trip that Sherlock Holmes and Watson were on together. About three in the morning, Sherlock suddenly nudged Watson awake and says, Watson, look in the sky, what do you see? Watson says, I see a myriad of stars. Yes, my dear Watson, and what does that mean? It could mean many things, Sherlock. Astronomically, it means that there are millions of galaxies and perhaps billions of stars. Astrologically, it means that Taurus the bull is in the ascendancy in the zodiac. Meteorologically, it means that it's going to be a nice day tomorrow. What does it mean to you, Sherlock? Watson, you idiot. It means somebody has stolen our tent. <laughs> Sometimes we lose sight of the obvious. We talk about the secular and the sacred as though these are diametric opposites that are at war with one another. I suggest to you a proper understanding coming from not only Scripture, Old and New Testament alike, 
but also from Augustine, from Aquinas, from Calvin and Luther, and on through church history, is that God has created the secular kingdom and the sacred, and that God has a purpose for each. Each has its place as established by God, but God is the author of both, and both are responsible to God. Understanding this, there really is no contradiction between saying one nation under God or in God we trust and saying separation of church and state. I think there is a real parallel between the Ten Commandments and the Constitution. I'm not placing them on the same basis. I'm just drawing a parallel here. The Ten Commandments are law in the sense that the Constitution is the supreme law of the land. But while they are law, they are not simply legislation. The Constitution, in that sense, is not legislation. We take the principles of the Constitution and we enact them into statute. The Constitution protects our right to property, but in reliance upon that right, we pass laws against theft and once in a while enforce them. We do the same with the right to life and other such rights that the Constitution guarantees to us. Unfortunately, we don't guarantee them nearly as thoroughly as I believe we should. Same is true of the Bible. You compare the Ten Commandments as they're set forth in Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5 and look at the rest of the Mosaic Law. Those portions of the Ten Commandments that are intended to be part of the civil or criminal legal system are further enacted by enabling legislation. We see thou shalt not kill. And then we have further laws about what happens to a murderer. We see thou shalt not steal or thou shalt not commit adultery. And we see what the penalty is to be for those things that set forth elsewhere in the Mosaic legislation. Now, some parts of the Ten Commandments were not intended to be enacted into civil or criminal law. Some parts were. But all ten of the commandments have secular applications and in our case, we insist that one of the reasons that many of these Ten Commandments cases have been lost is that the prosecution basically conceded, or I should say the defense, the government, basically conceded that the first table of the law, the first four commandments, are purely religious. We argue that you cannot draw that sharp a distinction between sacred and secular, that there are sacred and secular implications alike for every commandment. The first commandment, and one of the interesting things is we had a plaintiff there who insisted that the Decalogue as it was placed on that monument offended her because the numbering was different from her tradition. We asked her to look at a photo and see what part of that numbering was different from the way her church tradition taught it. By the way, she could name three commandments. But she tried to tell us, tried to tell us, then we pointed out about this amendment, or rather this monument that she said was so offensive to her. Did you know that the commandments are not numbered on the monument? And that was intentional from the beginning. The fact is, there are three systems of numbering the commandments. The Jews have one system, Catholics and Lutherans have another, 
Most Protestants use a third system. I think I would say, as some of our experts have said, that these numbering systems are ways of arranging and teaching them. They have very little theological difference among them. But as we look to the first commandment, I am the Lord thy God, thou shalt have no other gods before me, nor worship a graven image. I'm putting a couple together there, depending on which numbering you would use. This has a secular implication. It means that there is no human authority equal to government or equal to God. It means that government is not God's equal. It means that we should not worship government or any other idol but worship God alone. It means also that the things of the spirit, the things of liberty of conscience, are beyond government's jurisdiction. The command that you should not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain, that means cussing, most of us think, and it does, but it also prohibits perjury. I didn't just make that up. The catechism of the Catholic Church says that. Luther's small catechism likewise says that. So does the Heidelberg Catechism. Perjury is also a violation of that commandment. And a punishment of perjury is vital to an efficient operation of the judicial system. If the concept of justice is, as Aristotle said, that we are to render to every person what is due, how do we know what's due to every person unless we know the truth? Did the person commit the crime or didn't he? Does he deserve to be executed or fined or should he be let go? Unless we have a system that is designed to get at the truth, we can't possibly do justice. And George Washington in his farewell address declared that without the obligation of religious oaths that tells people that there is a God who knows all and knows the truth or falsehood of their testimony, even if they fool the prosecutor and the police and the judge, justice simply cannot be done. The command concerning the Sabbath is not only a secular com or a religious command for worshiping God, it is also a secular command because God has built into the world a principle of Sabbath rest, a need for rest periodically. And as one of our earlier state Supreme Court cases makes very clear, this is not only individual rest and relaxation, it is community rest and relaxation as well. Command to honor your parents. Likewise, that's the basis of our judicial system. And not only that, but as the various catechisms that I've mentioned also make clear, parents in turn delegate certain authority in the social contract to government. John Locke says the basic authority for civil government comes from parents based on, as he calls it, the fifth commandment. We can certainly see the implications of thou shalt not kill. Interestingly, the Puritans of colonial Massachusetts understood that to mean a protection of their civil liberties against government abuse by the crown. They argued that the commandment thou shalt not kill meant that you should not commit suicide either. Not, not only that you can't kill somebody else, but you can't kill your life yourself because your life is sacred unto God. And they said this means not only not killing yourself physically, it means not killing yourself politically by giving up your civil rights to government.
We can certainly see the implications of thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not bear false witness. But what about thou shalt not covet? Somebody wrote to the Montgomery Advertiser, and I'll describe him charitably as misinformed, saying that were it not for the command against coveting, or were it not for coveting, we couldn't have a free enterprise system because that's what free enterprise is all about. <laughs> well, he simply misunderstood the command, maybe deliberately. Coveting doesn't just mean wanting something. Coveting means obsessively wanting something. Or it can also mean wanting something that you shouldn't have. Or it can mean wanting something that rightfully belongs to somebody else. Or it can mean wanting something and being willing to take it from that person by illegitimate means. Again, I didn't make that up. Check the Catholic Catechism. I remember when I was in the Air Force as a young captain, there was a colonel or lieutenant colonel, I believe he was, who was a friend of mine, good staunch conservative. He drove this really nice Cadillac. And I commented on how I enjoyed his car, how nice it was. He said, you know, I really saved a long time to be able to have a car like this. But, you know, things have changed. Back when I was growing up, I lived in a working-class Italian neighborhood in New York, and we couldn't afford things like that. But we'd see somebody driving a Cadillac, and we'd think, wow, I'm going to work hard and save my money, and someday I'm going to drive a Cadillac. Well, now I do. But the attitude of people has changed. Today, people see me and they think, why should he be allowed to have a Cadillac? I can't afford one. That is what coveting is all about. Now, why is that a commandment? Nowhere in the Mosaic law do we see any punishments set forth by government for coveting. We don't read about anybody being stoned to death for coveting. But the command is there as a hedge, a protection for other rights that the Ten Commandments guarantee. A person who covets somebody else's property is more likely to steal it. A person who covets somebody else's wife or husband is more likely to steal or commit adultery with that person's wife or husband. The command against coveting, if taught and inculcated and practiced, makes society much more law-abiding and much easier to govern. There is a strong historical basis for the Ten Commandments being the foundation of our legal system. When we speak about the difference between Roman law and biblical law, sometimes we forget that Roman law in the later days of the Roman Empire underwent revisions by Christians. The Constantinian Code of the 4th century, the Theodosian Code of the 5th, and the Justinian Code of the 6th century, the 500s, bringing them more in line with biblical law. And we read about England in the 1200s through Enricus Bracton seeking to recover the Roman law. They're not looking for the old law of the Twelve Tables. They're looking to the Christianized Justinian Code. Charlemagne began his code with the Ten Commandments. So did Alfred the Great in England, the first written code that governed all of England. And we can go on through Maimonides, the Jewish rabbi who systematized the commercial law of the Old Testament and made it basically the commercial law of Europe. And we can go through many others, including the American colonies. But 
There's another factor here that I'd like to draw upon as well as we talk about this issue. We have done an interesting study, and I've been doing this the last couple of weeks especially, going through the legal computers, the Westlaw and Lexus as we call them, bringing up references to Decalogue, to Ten Commandments. And we're talking here only about courts of record, that is, U.S. Supreme Court, other federal courts, state Supreme Courts, sometimes state appellate courts, only courts of record. We have found over a thousand times when courts have referred to the Ten Commandments and used them as authority. Sometimes they use them to help interpret what a particular law means. For example, does the term larceny include other forms of theft? Several Supreme, state Supreme Court decisions have simply said, the Ten Commandments given on Mount Sinai simply say, thou shalt not steal. And there has never been any question about its meaning. We see other decisions where various courts have looked at the Ten Commandments. Here's one that I find especially interesting. This is Beatty versus McGoldrick in New York, and this is as recent as 1953. We have a question here about the Rent Control Act of New York and a lease between a landlord and a tenant. The tenant had brought her elderly parents to live in a spare bedroom in her apartment in violation, the landlord said, of the lease and of the Rent Control Act. Well, the court took a look at this, and the court says, the issue to be revived or to be reviewed in the finding that the landlord failed to establish the existence of an immediate and compelling necessity such necessity seems to have been amply demonstrated to give comfort and to heal the man in his last years, who, though he may be undeserving as the father, husband, and grandfather to the family unit, conforms not only to the very essence of the Decalogue, but is an immediate and compelling necessity in every sense of the word. Another one on the very similar subject here, the Civil Court in City of New York, 1981, deals with the situation that I've talked about here, the same landlord-tenant conflict, and the court simply says this is an interesting dilemma of a conflict between two laws, one written in stone approximately 3,500 years ago and the other written by mere mortals in 1962. <laughs> the former is the fifth of the Ten Commandments given by Moses on Mount Sinai, and the latter is subdivision A of section 52 of the New York City Rent and Eviction Regulations. Court said, if we had eyes to see the subtle elements of thought which constitute the great substance of our present habit, both as regards the sphere of private life and as regards the action of the state, we would easily discover how very much we owe to the Jews and for the Ten Commandments and other contributions to Western law. The court concluded then, the public policy of this state, as expressed in statute and decisional law, is not in conflict with the fifth of the Ten Commandments. It is all too rare in these troublesome times of self-indulgence to find people willing to sacrifice their own comfort and security for the sake of their parents. Therefore, far be it from the courts to punish such devotion. As I say, those are a couple of well over a thousand such references. There's another most important issue being raised in this case, and I'm trying to bring this to a close as quickly as I can here, but this is the issue of interposition. The doctrine of interposition, a medieval doctrine based on scripture, 
We see it in the Magna Carta, for example, where the Archbishop of Canterbury, Stephen Langdon, drafted the Magna Carta, and with the barons and bishops of England, forced King John to sign it against his will. Not a radical document in the sense of new and unheralded rights, but the first time in recorded English history that a king had been forced to sign such a document on pain of being kicked off the throne if he did not. The doctrine of interposition, as Archbishop Langdon taught it, was that the lesser officials, the barons, the bishops, had a duty when the king had become a tyrant to interpose themselves or place themselves between the king and the people and to compel the king to return to the laws of God and recognize the God-given rights of Englishmen or remove him from the throne and replace him with someone else. Thomas Aquinas addresses the same issue just a couple decades later in the same century. And in the Summa Theologica, he speaks about the doctrine of interposition as being a moderate or middle road doctrine between outright revolution of the people, or as he calls it, tyrannicide, killing the king, versus abject submission to government authority. Neither is the appropriate route, he says. If there is no law restraining the people, we have anarchy. If there is no law restraining the king, we have tyranny. In between is the rule of law and the proper course of action when a king goes outside the law and becomes a tyrant is that the people, through their duly constituted representatives, the lower magistrates, perhaps here the state and local governments, have a duty to interpose themselves between the higher magistrate and the people they represent. That may become the issue in the case we're facing here today. We don't know where this is going, nor do we know what is going to happen if it does go the route of this confrontation. But imagine a situation where a federal court says, remove the Ten Commandments from your state judicial building. And a chief justice of a state supreme court says, I'm not removing them. Imagine federal troops coming in to remove the Ten Commandments from a judicial building. Who knows where this could lead? I'm going to quote or close with a quote from a slightly different issue, but closely related, dealing with the phrase, under God, in our Pledge of Allegiance, because so much the same issue is raised here. I've seen many comments on this subject, none, I think, more profound than this statement by California State Senator Tom McClintock. Listen to what he says. There is a reason behind the move to strike the words under God from the Pledge of Allegiance, and I would add, remove the Ten Commandments as well, and from our national customs and our currency and our public ceremonies. It has very little to do with atheism. It has a great deal to do with authoritarianism. The radical left abhor the words under God because these words stand in the way of an all-powerful state. The French and American revolutions were waged on precisely the same declared rights of liberty and equality. One was a ghastly failure that ended in the reign of terror, the other a magnificent success. Why? In the philosophy of the French Revolution, the rights of man were defined by a governmental committee and extended at the sufferance of that government. In the American view, these rights came from God, 
Their existence is preeminent, and their preservation is the principal object of government. If the source of our fundamental rights is not God, then the source becomes man, or more precisely, a government of men. And rights that can be extended by government may also be withdrawn by government. Words matter, ideas matter, and symbols matter. The public furor fomented by the Ninth Circuit over the Pledge of Allegiance must not be devalued as a mere defense of harmless deistic references and quaint old customs. The principle at stake is central to the very foundation of the American nation and the very survival of its freedoms. So says California State Senator Tom McClinic. So says Cecil B. DeMille. So says Charlton Heston. So says Moses. So says Chief Justice Roy Moore. Thank you, and may God bless you. Now I'd like, we'd like to turn to our CEO, Mr. G. Van Smith, for some concluding remarks.